fourth book in uh, what we have called historically, uh, well, a bunch of different names. We've called the first five books of the Bible uh, the Pentateuch, five, Penta, Pentateuch. Uh, we've called it Torah, uh, after the Hebrew word Torah, which means law or instruction, probably more appropriately, instruction. Uh, and, of course, there are folks who have called the first five books of the Bible the law, uh, even though it is more than just rules. It's more than just statutes and regulations and things like that. Uh, it's a story. It's a, it's a worldview. Uh, it, it's calling us to see life as God sees it, uh, to live life as he has called for us to live. And we've been walking our way through this from uh, the book of Genesis all the way through, just kind of doing a bit of a flyover to, to understand kind of the big picture of what is going on in the first five books of the Bible, but not only uh, what's going on there, but really what's going on in the rest of the Bible, in the Bible as a whole, because the first five books set the stage for everything else that you read in your Bible. Uh, if you want to know what this is about, start here. Uh, if you want to know what God is, uh, what God is after, start here in these first five books. And so we're in book four. We're starting that this morning. Uh, the book of Numbers, and if you're there, say I'm there. All right, Numbers chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So get your dates together. You have the Exodus, and now we are two years and two months uh, or at least the first day of the second month, after the Exodus. And the Lord says to Moses in verse 2, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. There shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. So as you see here, they are prepping themselves for war. They're putting together an army. Avengers assemble. Okay? This is, they're putting these guys together and they're, they're getting ready for the journey. They're not made to stay at Sinai. They're made for the promised land. So now you see the pieces getting put together for them to leave Sinai and for them to head now into the promised land. What should take about two weeks to get from Sinai into the land, the land that right now there's fighting over and everything, Israel, Gaza, all that land over there. It takes about two weeks to get from Sinai by foot to, uh, to Canaan. Uh, to the land that we call Israel. And as you read the book of Numbers, you realize that this took, this two-week journey, took them 40 years. Now, uh, in our household, um, you could know for sure who's driving if we went from two weeks to 40 years. Um, one could probably turn that two-week trip into a two-day trip. Um, I'm not going to mention her name, uh, but, but um, and then there are some 
who, you know, pay attention to traffic laws and things like that, um, who, <laughs> who, who may get there a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, later. But 40 years? What in the world happened that it took them 40 years? Well, the book of Numbers gives us that answer. We're going to look at the beginning of the answer this week, and then we're going to see the rest of it next week. But, but this is very important for us, as I'll explain in just a bit, because like the people of Israel, we too are on a journey. We too are on a journey. We too are wanderers. So we need to listen carefully to what happened here with the people of Israel, because as we know from the New Testament, from the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, and, and several other chapters as well, what happened to them easily happen to us. So let's pray that God would give us wisdom and instruction as we seek understanding, as we seek to heed His Word, His warning. Let's pray. Father, we are in great need of Your help. We need You. Every hour, we need You. We, we, we gather together in this season of Advent because we long to be home. We long to be safe in the arms of Jesus, face to face with Him. We long for that day when He returns. All will be made well. We long for the day when we're no longer talking about school violence and we're no longer talking about uh, nations bombing nations and we're no longer talking about genocide and we're no longer talking about, uh, uh, about, about lawless uh, uh, laws and regulations and bills being passed that, that do not give honor to you. And we no longer talk about cultures raging against you and shaking their fists in rebellion against you. We long for the day when the Prince of Peace will finally and ultimately bring peace on earth. Lord, we know that that day is coming. It's been a long road. And easily for us, we could commit the same sins that the people of Israel did. Lose sight of who we are. Lose sight of where we've come. Lose sight of where we're headed. So Father, I pray that You would teach us from Your Word. Help us, Holy Spirit, to grasp, to receive, to keep, to heed all that you have given. Lord, if there's anyone that is here that does not trust Christ as their Savior, and they are wandering in the wilderness, Father, I pray that you would indeed call their names. May they hear your voice. May they turn from their sin and their unbelief. May they trust Christ alone as their Savior and their only hope in life and death. We ask big things because you're a big God. You're able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So magnify your name among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's that dreaded question that you may have heard when you take a long trip. It typically comes from one of your children, and it usually comes with an obnoxious whine. 
Are we there yet? How long is it going to take? Are we close to a bathroom? You hear this over and over again, right? It's been taking so long. My feet hurt. My legs hurt. Stop touching me. And all of these things that you hear over and over and over again on a, on a long trip. We've made trips uh, from uh, Texas uh, to Maryland and Pennsylvania and back uh, to Texas and back to Maryland. And we've made trips here from North Carolina back up to home and, and from home back down. And, and we've known after a while that it's just wise of us to take uh, little breaks. So there are little spots that we'll go to. Like if we're going up to uh, my folks in Delaware, Delaware, um, we go up there. Uh, we know that if we go up there, we're going to go through Norfolk. And if we go over in that area, there's a Mission Barbecue that's there. And we always stop at Mission Barbecue. It's a great place to stretch your legs and all of that. And it's a great place to eat. And so we, we know that's about a halfway point between here and, uh, and, and, and uh, Delaware. And so we go there and then we, we take the obnoxiously expensive tunnel bridge uh, uh, going all the way through Virginia's eastern shore and so on there. But what would happen if we decided, you know what, we're, we're just going to pedal to the floor, let's do this, one trip, no stop, and everything. You know what would happen, right? Uh, we would be on the side of the road somewhere. Uh, the kids would be the ones driving the, the car uh, back home or whatever, and, and we would never see my folks. It would be anarchy if that happened. Why? Because we don't like long journeys. We don't like long journeys. We don't like the, the waiting. We don't like the, uh, the, 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 the pain, the agony of perhaps not knowing if you're going to get there. It's crazy because on a trip to Delaware for us, you know, we, we've made it actually 100% of the time. Uh, every single time we've driven up there, we've actually made it to my mom and dad's. And every time we come back, we make it safely home. Uh, of course, we realize that's not always a guaranteed thing, but, but we also realize, though, that there really isn't any doubt for anybody that is whining, are we there yet? And how long is it going to take? And there's no need to worry, there's no need to whine, it's going to be okay. Likewise, we're on a journey. We know where we're going, don't we? We know who's driving this thing. We know all of these things that we just don't like the way. We don't like the journey. We don't like the pain. We don't like the agony. And it's so easy that we can lose sight of where we've come. We can lose sight of where we're going. We can lose sight of who's getting us there. It's exactly what was going on with the people of Israel here. As we read in the scriptures here in Numbers 1, they've, they've already made it some two years out of Egypt going into the promised land. They know where they're going. They know where they've come from. They know who's going to get them there. And yet, they're still struggling. Like we still struggle. We, our struggles are very similar to theirs. We're going to see what they struggled with as we go. But as we read this, I want to warn you. Be careful. You may read your Bible every once in a while, and as you go through the Scriptures, you, you may find some bad people. 
Um, just a little side note, outside of Jesus, they're on every page. Um, there's, some, there's some folks, you know, there's some, there's some real cases here. And, and you may look at these folks and go, man, you're a mess. <laughs> you are jacked up, right? Man, I am so glad that I'm not them. Or maybe you've had this. We've had this conversation at the house uh, over the years where, where we'll say, you know, if I were in the, their shoes, what? I wouldn't do that. You know, if, if I were in the garden, say all the way back in Genesis 3, if I were in the garden, I would just kick Satan in the teeth, right? And what we have to say as parents, yeah, you don't know yourself as well as we know you, right? We don't know ourselves as well as God knows us. And as we read these things, we're not reading them just so that we can see how bad other people are. Rather, we read them to recognize the tendencies of our own hearts. Let me show you where I get that from. Hold your place here, Numbers 10. And real quickly, uh, sorry, Don, I, I didn't tell you about this. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I just want you to see this really quickly. This is Paul's commentary on this section of the Scriptures. By the way, it may be a surprise to you that the Bible writers read their Bibles too. Did you know that? The Bible writers read their Bibles too. And many, many times they are talking about something that was already read in the Scriptures and they give commentary on it. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Look what he says here. He says in chapter 10, verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, that would be the people we're reading about in Numbers, the people of Israel, our fathers were all under the cloud. We're going to talk about the cloud in just a bit. And all passed through the sea. What sea is that? The Red Sea, yeah, over in Egypt. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. What's that spiritual food? Manna, yeah. And all drank the, uh, the spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's talking about when God caused water to come out of rocks. Those of you who flunked science, this is just a little bit of a newsflash. Water doesn't come from rocks. That's a miracle, okay? That water would appear in the desert coming through the rock and all that, and Paul makes the connection that that rock that they were drinking water from was actually Jesus, which is awesome. I don't have time to get into that, but that's worth meditating. Um, nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now look what he says, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul says, why is numbers in your Bible? Numbers is in your Bible so that you would heed the warning. Look what happened to them. Look what God did to that generation. Don't be so foolish as to think that you will get away with it. See what's going on here? What he did, what he did to them is meant to speak to us. To say, don't go there. He gives a warning again in verse 11. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't read numbers and go, whew, those guys were a mess. Read it and say, I could become a mess too if I don't pay attention to what God is showing us here. You know what we're saying here? All right, so let's turn in numbers and let's see what's going on. God is so good. Thank you, Pastor Sean. God is so good. Yes. And, and He has done so many wonderful things for the people of Israel. We already talked about the Exodus. We already talked about the things that He had done and providing water from the rock. By the way, in Numbers, He's going to do it again. And, uh, and, and he's, he's provided the manna and, and all of these different things. He's fed his people in the desert. He's warmed them in the desert. He's kept them cool in the desert. He's provided for all of their needs. Question, has God provided for you? Has God kept you through the journey to his house? Has God watched over you and provided for all of your needs and made all of your ends meet? Can you talk like the people of Israel should be able to talk of all of the blessings that God has done for them. And as you are you able to talk of all the blessings that God has done for you? You have much to be thankful for. And as we see here in the first ten chapters of Numbers, the people have much to be thankful for. God is watching over them. He's preparing them for the promised land. Just as He prepares us for the promised land. How does He do it? Well, first we see in the book of Numbers... He structures His people. He structures His people. Look what He said. We already saw this in chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. And He says, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and up, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. Okay? So this is a census. It's the book of Numbers. Brace yourself. There are numbers in the book of Numbers. And, and as you read the book of Numbers, what you find here in this beginning in chapter 1 is that uh, the Lord is putting together an army. He's assembling an army from the tribes of Israel. They're going to go into the land of Canaan and they are not going to waltz into Canaan. They are going to go into Canaan and they're going to have to do battle. They're going to have to fight for the land. Okay, Much of what we see on the news even to this day is the continuation of the fight for the land. The people of Israel, as children of Abraham, are given the, uh, the right to the land. They are the rightful heirs. God has given that to them all the way back in Genesis 12. And so here they are going into the land and they're looking to, uh, to take over and all that, but they're going to need an army first. They were slaves, and now from slaves they become soldiers. Okay? So he's putting these, these groups together. Chapter 1 will we'll lay out all of the preparation for that. But then as you get to the end of, of chapter 1, as you notice all the different tribes that are going on, all the different people that, that are assembling there, all of the numbers, look at verse 44. It says, these are those who were listed when Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the, of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing its father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years and up, every man able to go to war in Israel, 
all those listed were 603,550. That's a good army, right? That's a good crew, all right? And they're going to go into, army, into, into battle. But of all the tribes that they numbered, there was one tribe that God said not to number. They're not going to be included in this battle. They're not going to be included in the military. And he says that in verse 47. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. That's what he says in verse 51. When the tabernacle is set out, the Levite shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. Real quick question. Where's the setup team here? Let me see a show of hands, uh, the setup team. Look around. The setup team. They are essentially the Levites. Okay? They're the ones here in the, uh, of the group here that when we gather in, we come in here and everything, and they set up the tabernacle, right? They, they set up the speakers. They set up, you know, all of this. They arrange everything, set up the sound uh, board in the back, and set up the, 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 the uh, uh, projector and everything. And then when it's all over, they gather and they set it all down and everything, and they, and they go their way. The Levites were the setup crew, okay? They were the ones, wherever they went from town to town, once they got there, they would set up the tabernacle so that the people had a place to worship God. It's a really cool thing. But he says that's their focus. Their focus as priests is on the worship of God. They're not to go into war. They're to lead the people into worship. Okay? And so that's what he says there. He's structuring the people. And then as you see in chapter 2, he arranges the people, uh, taking them tribe by tribe, and all of them were to travel in a certain order. This tribe had to be over here, this tribe had to be over here, this tribe had to be over here, and all of that. And in the middle of the camp, in the middle of all the people, was, uh, were the Levites, who were the ones guarding the tabernacle. In the middle was the tabernacle, and all the people went to gather to the tabernacle to worship. And so you have that in chapter 2, all of the arranging and so on that goes there. When you get into chapter 3, what you find is uh, the Lord starts giving specific instructions to the priests, the, the Levites, who were the tribe uh, uh, that were focusing on the priesthood, and specifically the children of Aaron, who were uh, designated to be the high priests. They were the ones on the Day of Atonement, as we read last week in Leviticus, they were the ones uh, once a year that were granted permission to go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And they could only do that once a year. And that was on the holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the only time that they could do that. And so uh, the Lord gives instructions to the sons of Aaron. In chapter 3, he gives instructions to the Levites as a whole. He divides the Levites into uh, uh, the tribes, uh, or, I'm sorry, into three groups after uh, three sons uh, of Levi uh, in, verse, uh, in chapter uh, 3, verse 17. He says, these are the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. Um, uh, and so you have those three, and then he designates them, your families, these are the things that you focus on, uh, 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 Gershon, Kohath, these are the things your family focuses on, Merari, 
These are the things that you guys focus on. And all he's doing, as you see all of this, is he's putting things into order. He's organizing the people, not just to live in the wilderness, but he's organizing them for when they go into the promised land. God is a structured God. He's not a God that does things willy-nilly. He's not a God that just wings it. That's not this God. Go all the way back to Genesis 1. You notice the earth was without form, and it was empty, and it was dark. And God said, no, nah, that's not how I do things. And we saw what he did. He set it in order, right? We are entering uh, the season of winter. It's like clockwork. I know today feels like spring. And there's a reason that it's unusual to us, right? It's unusual to us because we expect winter to be coming soon. Why do we expect winter? Because that's how God has set it in order. You see what's going on? God is the reason that we expect winter. God is the reason that we get excited about the leaves falling and all that. We go, I know what time it is. And no, I do not mean pumpkin spice season. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is fall. It's time for fall. We see the leaves and we go, this is amazing. It's my favorite time of year. Let's get the cider. Let's, get, let's, let's uh, have a fire out and uh, uh, get the fire pit lit and, and all of these different things. Let's roast marshmallows. Let's have a good time. Why? Because we are seeing the hand of God at play. God is one who put things in motion. And just like that, he expects his people to be set in motion. Note, we as a church, we have certain structures, right? There are people in society who aren't all that thrilled with structures. Uh, there have been certainly, because of sin, there have been evils that have perpetuated through systems and through structures and things like that. We've got to be real about that. We've got to be honest about that. But the answer to that is not no structure. Because that would lead to chaos. And our God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And we see here, God is taking this group of slaves, freed them from their slavery in Egypt, and before He sets them into the promised land, he sets them into order. He organizes and makes a people and says, this is how I want you to go. This is what I want you to focus on. This is what I want you to focus on. We've got this team and that team, the Levitical team, the, 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 the uh, Gershon team, the Merari team, and all of this. And all of them are focusing on these things. Everybody's got a plan. Everybody's got a purpose. Everyone's got a role. Let's roll. I didn't plan that either. Uh, everyone's got a role. And so they keep going. Do you notice even in the body of Christ, God has given us roles. God has given us responsibilities. The Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit gifts us for specific tasks and specific purposes. There are some of you that are excellent at evangelism. And there are others that may not be all that great. Maybe you're a little shy. Maybe you're just, you know, I don't really want to be, you know, saying that. And I don't want folks asking me questions that I can't answer and, all of these different things. And there's some of y'all that are like, let's roll! And you just, you just jump right in. Uh, hey, that's great. That's how the Spirit has gifted you. And the Bible says that He has done that in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. He has done that for the edification of the church. That's how all of us grow into Christ-likeness. We all grow into Christ-likeness by the Lord gifting us in various and diverse ways. 
You have a role in the church. You have a responsibility in the church. And God has structured it so that we need you. God has structured it so that you need us. And together we work for the glory of God wherever He places us. That's good news. So God structures His people. Not only does He structure us, He sanctifies us. And that really takes us from uh, into chapter 5. As you look into chapter 5 and you see what's going on there, uh, you notice that the, the, the tone changes. He went from talking to the people and getting them set up, getting the army assembled and all of that, and then giving some specific instructions to the Levites and how they were supposed to be, uh, the priests and all. And then in chapter 5, he says in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. People did so, put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. And then you go on into the next session. You've got another uh, issue that's dealing with sin here. Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did wrong. Um, and then he, So there we're talking about restitution. We would say in our day, that would be the concept of reparations. You wronged somebody, well now you got to pay the price. You can't just, it doesn't just you know, sweep it under the rug and say, my bad, well, let's move on. That's not how this works. There has to be a payment for that sin. There has to be some type of restitution. He says, hey, if you're not able to do that, uh, uh, it says in verse 8, if man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. Every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel which they bring to the priest shall be his. Each one shall be the, uh, his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. In other words, he's saying here, if there's a sin, there has to be a payment for sin. And if you can't pay the person that you've wronged, if you can't pay that person back, then you need to go to the priest and not only pay him uh, pay for the wrong, but you also need to offer a sacrifice for atonement. Why do you need to offer a sacrifice for atonement? Because you, as the sinner, stands under the wrath of God. And in order for there to be some type of reconciliation with the person that is wronged and reconciliation to God Himself, there has to be a payment for your sin. This is serious. And yet it is such good news. Because all of us have wronged someone in some way, shape, or form, have we not? Some of you, like myself, You'll have moments where you, your mind will wander and you'll think back, you know, I remember that person that I did wrong 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And you go, oh, and you feel that guilt all over again of going, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I feel so bad. I feel the shame of, 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 of wronging a person and, and all of these things. And there is no way for us to go back, for many of us, 
to that person. We can't go back to that situation. They've moved on. We've lost contact. All of these different things. How in the world are we supposed to pay for the sin that we've committed? The good news is the payment has already been made. God has given a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ who Himself is not only the full payment, but He's also the atoning sacrifice. And He has covered all of the sin. The sin that you still feel regret over after all of these different years. You can look at that sin that you have done and you can say, sin, I know that you're there. I know that you still are there in my memories and all that. I can go back just like this to that day or that time or, 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 or that place. and all. I can go back just like that. But, you know, before I go back to that place, maybe I need to take a little bit of a detour to this place called Calvary. And I need to remind myself over and over again, Yes, what I did was there, and it was wrong, and I feel sorry for that, and I feel regret for that, but what I also feel is great joy and gratitude that my Savior saw that sin, and He remembers it no more. Because it has been paid for on the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Sin has left the crimson stain. What? He washed it white as snow. This is good news, church. He sanctifies His people. Back in those days, if you were a leper, or if you had touched someone that was dead, you had to, you had to get out of there. In the next story, in there, he, uh, uh, the next case, he talks about a law, about if there's a, a, a husband who feels some type of suspicion over his wife, that she may have cheated on him. And, he, and there's a whole law about what to do in that situation. It's a weird law. Just going to give you all the heads up. It's weird. She's got to drink this this special kind of, of of water and all of that, and if it causes her you know her her body to, to go all cuckoo and and everything, then that's supposed to be the test that says, "Up, oh, she did cheat on you." I don't get it. Don't ask me. What you need to do is is uh, email info at tccraleigh.org, and and they will be happy to answer that. Heather, thank you very much. Um, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's, you know what, what's going on there? Well, what's going on, again, is we're, we've got a sin that has the potential to defile the camp. And we've got to take care of this and pay attention to this to make sure that there's nothing here that, is, uh, that will potentially defile the camp. What are they doing here? They're being called to take sin seriously. To take sin seriously. You say, but Ron Jor, leprosy isn't a sin. Uh, uh, you know, uh, having this kind of discharge of infection and all that, that's not a sin, no. So not only were they to take sin seriously, they were also to take the curse seriously. See what's going on? Well, as we gather together, we recognize the fact that we are fallen creatures. And we live in a fallen world. We just spent time praying seeking God's help, seeking God's mercy, intervening in the fallenness of our community. We go to Him and we say, Lord, help us. It's such good news that we don't have to kick people out because of their uh, uh, sicknesses and illnesses and 
all of those things. The Lord actually says in the Scriptures, a great story is in Luke 14 where, where He tells a story of a guy who is, who is trying to bring this big banquet. He's put a whole lot of money into it. It's a big wig type of thing. Kind of like a donor banquet or something. He's getting all the dignitaries and everything in there. And one by one, they're all given excuses for why they shouldn't be there. Uh, I can't go, you know, I just got married. I can't go, you know, I got a job and I got to focus on the business. I got, I, I can't go and all that. And he's getting frustrated because there's a whole lot of food. He's got it catered and everything. And he's just like, I, I, I need to do something. And so he says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to go out to the hood. I want you to go to the streets. I want you to go to the street corners. I want you to go all and bring the lame, bring the crippled, bring the blind. Bring the hurting and all them. Bring them in because there's a seat at the table for them. And Jesus says, that is the kingdom. That's the kingdom. So, so no, we don't have to do like they did back in those days where they had to kick them out in order to keep themselves pure as a people. They're in the presence of God and all of that. Now the Lord has done a 180 and says, no, bring them in. Because Jesus has come. And as Jesus has come, He comes and He sets up a hospital right here among us. So that those who are sick and those who are hurting and those who are broken, those who have felt the effects of their own sin, those who have felt the effects of the fallenness of this world can come here and be home. This is good news. God is sanctifying for Himself a people. He's bringing us all together and He is sanctifying us from our defilement. He's also sanctifying us for something. He's sanctifying us for worship. You know, I, before we get into this, I do have to just take a little bit of a detour here in, in number six because there's some cool things that are going on in there. In chapter six, you have what we, uh, what we call the Nazarite vow, talking about defilement and separation and not being stained with sin and all that, where there was a special vow that was taken where one could not cut their hair they could not have any contact with a dead body. They could not drink from the vine. They couldn't have any type of uh, wine or alcohol or anything like that. They, they were separated to God for a specific purpose. That was called the Nazarite vow. We have that in chapter 6. But what's also interesting is how chapter 6 ends. Chapter 6, uh, six ends with a blessing on the people. See that? Verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, listen to what he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. It says there, So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless why do we have to be sanctified? Why do we have to be purified? Why do we have to be cleansed? And all of these things that we see in chapters 5 and 6, all of those things exist so that we would be a people of God's blessing. So that we would be a people that bear His name. So that we would be known as the ones on whom God smiles. How do you do it? You do it by working hard? You do it by biting your bottom lip and just right? Just just grit it out and grind it out like we're going to do, yeah, we're tough. We're going to do, no, that's not how this works. It comes by us instead, in fact, the exact opposite, in our weakness and in our need, falling before the Lord and saying, the only one who can make us clean is Jesus. 
And it's because Jesus is so faithful in being our great high priest and cleansing us from all sin that we could have, as Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God opens up the storehouses and says, have it all. You can have all that I have for you because of what my son has done on your behalf. That's good news. God sanctifies people. Then he also sanctifies this worship. And in chapter 7, you see uh, uh, these people uh, all from the tribes, all the heads are coming together, and they're providing offerings. And it says that they're doing these offerings in order to uh, dedicate uh, the temple. They're doing these offerings uh, in order to, uh, uh, to, if you will, consecrate the altar. So this is a place... Uh, that is holy, this is a place where sacrifices are going to be done, this is a place where, where, uh, where forgiveness of sins is going, to, is, is going to be paid for, and all of these different things. And so he says, hey, I want you to, to, uh, to offer uh, offerings and gifts and all of these different things in order to dedicate the altar. And so as you go through chapter 7, you see all of the things that are going on as they do that. It's a long chapter, uh, but the whole chapter ends, as it says, Excuse me. It all ends in verse 84, 84, where it says, This was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel. Twelve silver plates, twelve silver basins, twelve golden dishes, and you go through all the whole list of all the things that they dedicated there. Um, he says at the end of verse 88, This was the dedication, altar for the, uh, the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And look what happens. When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony. That would be the altar from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. In other words, after the dedication and all of that, God came near. Oh, that's good. God came near. And Moses was able to speak to the Lord directly from that place. So they, it's a special place. It needed to be consecrated. You've got seven lamps in, verse, uh, in chapter 8, the first couple of verses there. What are the lamps for? Well, he says in verse 2, when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps give light in front of the lampstand. Oh, okay. Why do we have lamps? Well, duh, to light up the lamp. I, I have no idea what that means. Well, I think what's going on is these lamps are meant, again, to kind of provide a designation. This is a special place. This isn't just in any old place where you can gather and all of that. This is a place that needs to be, if you will, kind of fenced off. And it's fenced off with the light of the lampstands and all of that. It's, again, a consecrating thing. You have the Levites that have to be consecrated. You have that really through the rest of chapter 8. All the uh, things that they had to do. There's even a retirement plan for the Levites when you get to the end. And he says that uh, you start when you're about 25 years old. Uh, as it says in verse 24, from 25 years old and up. But then when you get to 50, then you're done. And you've done your service, and so it's a 25-year service, and then after 25 years, you retire, uh, and so on. Travis just uh, turned 50. Uh, and so, you know, Travis, if he were a Levite, he would throw up the deuces and say, it's been real, love y'all, but I'm out. You know, I've done, I've done my, my time, my, my, my service. Um, <laughs> and so, so you have all of that that's there. Then in chapter 9, there's a Passover. They uh, again celebrate the Passover. Why? To remember how God set them apart in Egypt. How he rescued them. 
when all of the firstborn were executed in Egypt, God spared the houses that had the blood of the Lamb spread across their doorposts and so on. And so again, remembering you are a special people. You are a holy people unto me. And that's what you have there with the Passover. So the Lord is sanctifying the people and now He's sanctifying the worship. Then on top of all of that, now in, in chapters 9 and going into chapter 10, He's steering them. He's, he's, he's directing them and guiding them. So he's, He has uh, 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 structured them. He has sanctified Him. And now He steers them. And notice He steers them with His presence. You get into chapter 9, and what you find out is that uh, towards the end of chapter 9, uh, you find that there was a cloud, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and they did not move unless it moved. That again signified the presence of God among them. And then there were trumpets in chapter 10. And if one trumpet blew, then that was a message, hey, all the priests, we need all the priests to come over. If it was a, a two-trumpet thing, we need everybody in here. It's a two-trumpet alarm. Everybody come on in, and, and so on, because God has something to say. And then you get to the end of chapter 10, and now they get to a point where they are leaving Sinai. Now they get up, all the people, the cloud is moving, now we all move from Sinai, and we're heading over into the promised land. God has been good to them. He's structured them. He's sanctified them. He's now steering and guiding and directing them. Can we not say all of this about ourselves? God has indeed structured us and He's putting together a people. He's, he's organizing us to be a people for His purpose. He has also sanctified us by the blood of Jesus and purified us with His Holy Spirit. And He is guiding us and leading us and steering us. So again, we ask the question that we did at the beginning, why did it take 40 years? beginning of the question is what we're going to see here. Well, it's because we squawk back at God. That's why. Because we can't, start, we can't stop grumbling. People had a whining problem. They just couldn't stop complaining. They could have been grateful, but instead they chose to grumble. Let me tell you, it is a very offensive thing to the Lord when we exchange gratefulness with grumbling. Look at what happened in chapter 11. It says the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, he was kindled. Uh, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Tabera is, is uh, uh, related to the Hebrew word for burning there. It was called the place of burning because the Lord's anger burned in that area. Why were they grumbling and complaining? They were grumbling and complaining because they were experiencing misfortune. And they said, I hate this. I don't like this. This is stupid. Why are we doing this in the first place? I don't like And boom, here comes the fire of the Lord. How about round two? Now the rabble, it's an interesting word in the, in, the, in the Hebrew, it's really talking about the people who went along with the Israelites that weren't Jewish themselves. Probably the Egyptians and so on that saw the stuff that was going on with the plagues, and they said, 
I ain't staying here. And they went with Israel uh, into the, uh, uh, in the wilderness and all that. Well, this rabble that he says here that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. You see what's going on here? They're going, I don't like this food. All we eat is manna day after day after day. Man, we were feasting back in Egypt. Notice the selective memory here. That's, by the way, what happens when you grumble. When you grumble, all of a sudden, you have a very selective memory. And you go, man, things were so good back then. You mean back then when you were crying out to the Lord for deliverance? Back then when you were making bricks without straw? Back then when you were so oppressed? That, that, that the voice, uh, the sound of your crying and, and, the, and the sound of your tears and all that made it all the way up to heaven that, that time? Yeah, man, those were the days. Like, wh what is wrong with you? <laughs> we're, they're grumbling and complaining about all of this, not taking the time to be grateful that they're in a desert with food that God is providing for them in the desert. There's no, there's no Harris Teeter there. There's no food lion in the desert. Whatever they've got is what they've got. And God says, I'm going to provide above and beyond what you've got. I'm going to provide manna. I'm going to provide the little bread flakes and all of that. And they're like, I don't like it. Well, if you read the, the, the passage, we'll skip over it. But if you read in there in verses 7 and on, you read that these weren't just little pieces of bread. The Lord was, he was feeding his people. All right, this was like, you know, garlicky and all. I mean, this was like that 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 uh, Olive Garden, all you can eat breadstick type stuff that they were getting here, and they were loving it and all that. And now they're like, I don't like this anymore. I want, I want, I want something else. And so, what does the Lord do? The Lord says, All right, I got you. Uh, first off, Moses complains, and Moses is like, you know, did I give birth to these people that I've got to like be their dad and parent them and have to listen to their whining, complaining all day long? Hey, that's Moses. <laughs> but uh, but then he says, uh, the Lord says, I want you to do this. I want you to get seventy people. Verse 16, 70 men of the elders, and I want you to bring them all together and everything because we're going we're gonna to handle this. He says, uh, they, want, they want food? He says, I'm going to give them some food. <laughs> and he says, look at uh, verse 19. He says, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days. You're going to eat a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? In other words, he says, oh, you want food? I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you so much food, you're going to be sick of it, and you're going to be complaining about how much food I've given you. And Moses goes, okay, how are we supposed to do that? He says, that, that, that's a, we've got a lot of people here, and that's a lot of meat. How are we going to do that? And look at verse 23. The Lord says to him, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. He says, watch me. God does a little usher video. Watch me. He says, look what's going to happen here. And so Moses went out and he told the people the words of the Lord. They gathered 70 men of the elders. The Lord came down in verse 25, and they took some of, this, uh, uh, some of the spirit that was on them and put it on the 70 elders. The elders start prophesying. They only did it temporarily. There were two men in the camp, Eldad and Medad. They started prophesying as well. It's a, it's a fun story. But look what happens in verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp. 
about two cubits above the ground. That's a lot of meat, okay? Quail as far as the eye can see, quail to your heart's content, and they're like, finally, we got some meat over here. Goodness. And they're, they're, they're not happy. But notice what happens. While the meat, verse 33, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, before they could swallow it, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. You don't think grumbling is a big deal? You don't think complaining is a big deal? You don't think whining is a big deal? Look at the Lord. Now there's a difference between grumbling and complaining and lament. Lament is us going to the Lord and saying, Lord, please do something. Please, Lord, help us. We are in need of your help, Lord. Please answer. Please answer quickly. That's lament. Grumbling is, why don't you do something? I should be I deserve better than this. There's a difference between lament and, for instance, an Amazon review. And that's what a grumbling and complaining is. It's a one-star review. And God is saying here, you want to be a grumbler instead of being grateful? After all that I have done and all that I've provided for you? Instead of counting your blessings, you would rather complain? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I have done? Last, we have a story in chapter 12 where it even got into the leadership. You had Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron, Moses' sister Miriam. They decide that uh, they're going to start a coup. Get used to that in the book of Numbers. There are a lot of coups in the book of Numbers. They're going to start a coup, and look at what they do. They, they hit way below the belt. Look what they do in verse 1. Moses and Aaron spoke against uh, Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. They said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Notice what's going on. They're making a power play. They're going, hey, we're just, Moses isn't the head of this people. All of us experience the same thing. God has spoken to us. God's spoken through us and all of that too. Moses ain't all that. And besides, Look at his black wife. Cush, by the way, is located in modern-day Ethiopia. Look at his wife. You're going to listen to him? Shouldn't you be listening to people who are a little bit more pure than him? Evil. Absolutely. Evil. It's his brother and sister. Notice it says, the Lord heard it at verse 2. This, by the way, is when most of us as who are reading this will go, Ooh, you're all going to get it. What is going on? What's driving this? I don't think what's driving this is they're, they're you know, upset over this interracial marriage here between Moses and Zipporah. I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's going on is they're jealous of the of the position that Moses has, and they're willing to go below the belt. They're willing to to do this 
nasty little smear campaign and all of that, if that's what it takes for them to get the power that they want. And it's wicked. The Lord meets them. It says in verse 3, the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people that were on the face of the earth. I don't know if Moses wrote that verse. And suddenly, um, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three came out. The Lord came down in the pillar of a cloud, and he stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And notice, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. Two things to note. Number one, why Miriam? Probably because she was the ringleader. Number two, why leprosy? Well, after all, she had a problem with a dark-skinned woman, so, so the Lord says, then I'm going to make you as white as possible. Leprosy. You think the Lord is just ambivalent when it comes to grumbling and complaining? Remember the Lord with the disciples. He said, you know that the Gentiles love the Lord, their authority over others, and so on. You may remember him looking them straight in the eye and saying, not so with you. We don't do that kind of nonsense in here. We don't do power plays. We don't play the political game. We don't do all of this dog-eat-dog, undercutting, stabbing in the backs, and all of these different things that happen uh, out there in the world. That's how they are. But in here, you are people of love. We are people who are compassionate towards one another. We are people who are not going to throw each other under the bus or anything like that. That's not how God's holy people act. We are not a people who grumble and complain. We are not a people who backbite and, and stab in the back. That's not who we are. And yet we see in here that this is how the people of Israel were. And we need the warning that if we are not careful carefully, humbly walking with the Lord, this can be said of us too. Miriam said, uh, or Aaron said to, uh, to Moses, O oh my Lord, in verse 11, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and we've sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cries out to the Lord. Notice Moses cries out to the Lord. Moses cries out to the Lord. They can't go to the Lord. They're the ones who are like, yeah, God talks to us and all of that. But in this situation, Moses, please do something. I find that ironic. Moses, do something about it. And Moses intercedes on her behalf. Lord, please heal her. Please. And the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out to march till Miriam was brought in again. And, the pe and uh, after that, the people set out from Hazaroth, and they camped in the wilderness of Paran. Notice what's going on here. They wanted to be the ones in charge, and God said no. And they needed the one who was in charge to intercede for them. We have one who intercedes on our behalf, and he is in full control and full uh, authority over us. His name is Jesus. And when you think that you are bigger than him, he's got a problem. 
when you think you are the one running the church, we've got a problem. When you think that you are the one, then everything's got to run by you. We've got a problem. Because this is not your church. This is Christ's church. So we recognize that the things that work with them work with us as well. Folks, it's a long journey. And it's easy for us to get antsy. It's easy for us to start forgetting where we've come from. It's easy for us to start forgetting where we're going. It's easy for us to start forgetting who's going to get us there. It's in that moment that we should hear the warning that God has given from the people of Israel. Say, guys, remember who you are. You have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You have been brought together and structured by our great God. You have been sanctified by His Son, by His Holy Spirit. You are being led, steered on this journey by His Holy Spirit, getting us there to the promised land. Don't take His grace for granted. Don't turn your gratitude into grumbling. Don't sacrifice others for your own power. But rather, recognize that God is making us a different people on a different journey to a much better destination. And may we continue to follow Him, trusting Him, walking with Him, faithful by His Spirit until He comes. Are we there yet? Not yet. But we're getting there. Until then, may we be found faithful. Let's pray. Well, we have said here that it is by the blood of Jesus that we are cleansed from our sin. It's by Jesus that God supplies all of our need. Perhaps you are here this, this morning and you have wrestled with grumbling and complaining. Perhaps you have wrestled with your own pride. Thinking that you deserve more thinking that you are entitled to more. Thinking that all of this revolves around you. It has blinded you from seeing all that God in His grace has done for you and for His people through our Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is the blood of Jesus still applies. We are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. We remember as a people that who we are right now is not who we will always be. That our Lord has given us His Word that we are going to make it by His grace. And we will stand complete and blameless at His coming. And it is not cheap. It is not automatic. It is by the blood that he shed on Calvary.